finish up Matthew chapter 10 this morning. We've been uh, taking a look at this section of um, Jesus' teaching, where he's getting ready to send his apostles, his 12 disciples, out into the world on their first mission for him. They've been, they've been walking with him. They've been being taught by him. They've watched him serve and heal and push back the powers of darkness. And now it's their turn to step out and do some of these things for themselves. And it started off a few weeks ago, pretty exciting. You're going to go out and you're going to heal people and cast out demons. It's going to be great. But then it turned the corner a little bit. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be dangerous. There's going to be things that are harmful for you. Be wise because you're going to be in enemy territory. And then he said, but don't be afraid because God is on your side. The one who has power over your life physically and spiritually and he loves and cares about you more than anyone. And as we finish up this section this morning, we're going to touch on some of those themes again. But I want us to take a look at what I think are three aspects of following Jesus that we can find in these verses. And the first thing about following Jesus is that following Jesus is public. We looked at it already, but let's read it again. Verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So this, um, this idea of acknowledging Jesus... If you um, look at the way the Greek words work, and you don't have to do that to read your Bible. I always hesitate like saying the Greek says because it makes you feel like maybe you don't really know what the Bible says. And that's not the case. But in this instance, there's a preposition, the word in, and uh, you could translate it acknowledge in me, or some of your Bibles might say confess in me. And what Jesus is saying is that there's a, there's a relationship here between the disciple and the one they're confessing. This isn't just an acknowledgement of existence. It's not like I acknowledge that our president is Donald Trump. I acknowledge that Kanye West is a fan of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That's fine. I can do that. But I don't know our president. I don't know Kanye West. I would like to. I think that'd be fun. <laughs> but it's an acknowledgement of relationship. Do you know Jesus? There's a connection there. There's a covenant there. Um, one of the things my wife loves to do when we are on vacation or when we go to coffee downtown is she likes to hold my hand. And honestly, after 17 years of marriage... I don't get a whole lot out of that anymore. It's not as exciting as it once was. When we were dating, when I was 18 years old, holding Joanna's hand was a big deal. 
But that spark has faded a little bit. But that's not really the point of holding her hand in public. The reason holding her hand out in public is it's communicating something, not really to us. We know pretty well where we stand in our relationship, but it communicates to everyone else that we belong to one another, that there's something between us that's close and intimate enough to where we hold each other's hands. And this is what Jesus is getting at, this acknowledgement of him is about relationship. It's about connection. Our culture currently believes that being a devout religious person, especially a Christian, uh, is, is something that should just be kept private. I've talked to people many times and they say, oh yeah, I believe that, but it's a very personal thing. It's a very private thing. I don't talk about it. And that, everybody thinks that's kind of the right way to handle your beliefs. If you want to believe those things, no one's going to stop you. It's a free country, right? But just don't talk about it. Don't be vocal about it because that's, that's just kind of offensive. Um, a, a recent Barna study found that 47% of millennial Christians, millennials are 25 to 35 years old now, I think. I'm one. Um, of my generation agree at least, Christians agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hope that they will one day share the same faith. So half of my generation who say they believe the gospel, who are Christians, have bought into the idea that I probably shouldn't tell anybody about it because that would be offensive. It's kind of like we see our faith like our underwear. It's important to us. We've probably given it some thought, but we're not showing everybody what it looks like. And that's unfortunate because that's kind of a foundational belief when it comes to following Jesus. And this is what Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before my Father. But if you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father. Have you ever denied Jesus? Like I always think of denying Jesus as like, you know, standing up in court and signing an affidavit that says, I'm an atheist or I don't believe in God and it's this big deal. But I found that I've denied Jesus in very simple ways, very um, interesting ways. I was, um, a couple of years ago, I, I was parked in a parking lot and someone backed their trailer into my car. And thankfully their insurance covered the cost of that body work. And I dropped my car off at the body shop to get fixed and I had to go back to work. And so they had a courtesy shuttle that took me back to the Croc Center where I worked at the time. And I was sitting in the passenger seat with the guy and he goes, oh, what do you do at the Croc Center? And at the time I was the worship pastor at the Croc Center and I managed the theater. And without skipping a beat, when this guy said, what do you do at the Croc Center? I said, I managed the theater. And I didn't really think about it. And we had a really great conversation about art and music and theater. But then I got out of that car and I thought, why didn't I tell, them I'm a, tell him I'm a pastor? And, and it wasn't like there was this big, deep um, 
you know, wrestling in my heart. Should I tell him? Should I not? I don't know. It was just instantly, I just disconnected myself from that part of who I was. And I thought that was so weird that there was something deep inside of me that was so quick to deny Jesus and not even really think about it. There's a really powerful story of someone who denied Jesus a few chapters from now. His name is Peter. He's one of Jesus' uh, best friends and closest followers. And we see when Peter's in a situation where things might get dangerous, things might get scary for him to be one of Jesus' people, he denies Jesus three times. And I kind of feel like maybe I I can kind of understand what Peter's going through. That he just instantly said, no, I don't know that guy. I'm not part of that. Because sometimes it's just easier to deny Christ. And he hears the rooster crow and he immediately feels the shame that he denied his Lord. And he, it's, the Bible says he weeps. But the good part of this story is that Jesus restores Peter. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And then he commissions him to be one of the most um, powerful uh, foundational apostles of the early church. And so for those of us that can go, yeah, like I've totally denied Jesus. There have been opportunities where I could have stood firm in my faith and said, I am a Christian. This is what I stand for. This is who I love. This is the God that controls my life. And I didn't do that. Well, there's hope because we, we serve a God of grace, right? We serve a God who gives you another opportunity to walk with him. And so this passage, when we read it in light of that, therefore everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. This is a continual denial of the Lordship of Christ. This is someone who just doesn't want to have anything to do with God. But it is a reminder for us that following Jesus is public. And as, as Christians, we should be growing into people who are more confident in the God we serve. The second thing, the second aspect of following Jesus that I see here is that Following Jesus is violent. And you may be thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. We've talked over and over and over again about how following Jesus is not violent, about how we love our enemies, how we turn the other cheek, how we pray for those that persecute us. And that's true, but look what verse 34 says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. See, the gospel doesn't leave room for neutral responses. If you, if you give out the information that Jesus is Lord of everything and you owe him your allegiance... There is no response that's just like, okay, whatever, that's cool. Like you can't land there. You either bow as his servant or you rebel against him as his enemy. There's really only two options. 
And so the idea that the, the gospel, that following Jesus is violent is not so much the message of the gospel and certainly not the actions of Jesus' people because we are called to peace and love and nonviolence, but it is the very fact that the gospel divides. The fact that when you become a Christian, it makes people uncomfortable. Jesus says some of you are gonna even lose your family because you wanna follow Jesus. Not because you are violent, not because you are causing strife or stirring up trouble, but because your decision to follow Jesus will make people uncomfortable. It will cause them to distance themselves from you and even make them your enemy. Ironically, the gospel of peace brings violence to the human heart. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God, the gospel is powerful and it's going to cut not just between relationships, but even into your own heart. And this is what Jesus says in verse 37, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus, the, the use of the word worthy uh, could also be translated with the question, do you have what it takes? That reminds me of uh, maybe it's a Marine Corps recruitment commercial or maybe it's even just like a Nike commercial because somehow those are the same thing in my mind. <laughs> but like, do you have what it takes to beat the enemy, to get through the training, to run the distance, to climb the mountain, whatever it is. And, and always that brings up this idea of sacrifice and struggle and pain. Do you have what it takes? Because if, you, if your priorities are such that you choose your parents over Jesus or you choose your children over Jesus, he says, you don't have what it takes. Jesus says, I have to be the number one priority in your life. And that doesn't mean that we, we hate our parents or we hate our children or we don't care for our family. There's a lot of really important stuff about caring for your family in here but our highest priority has to be Jesus. And if we don't believe that's the case, then Jesus says, you don't have what it takes to be my disciple. And then he says something unpleasant. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that the word cross appears. And if, you've, if you were here over Easter weekend, we talked a little bit about the cross. We talked about Cicero. Cicero was a Roman orator. Uh, he was kind of a big deal in the Roman Empire. And he wrote that 
Roman citizens shouldn't talk about crucifixion because it's just not socially acceptable in polite conversation. It's just gross. It's unpleasant. It's distasteful. And so for Jesus to bring up the cross, and at this point just to use it as a metaphor, is pretty strange. His audience would have been, really, Jesus? That's, that's the metaphor you're going to use? Maybe you should have thought that through a little more, pick something a little less yucky. See, the cross was awful. The Romans used crucifixion to kill their enemies, to execute criminals, to um, execute captives of foreign armies. But the cross wasn't just about killing people. There were much simpler ways to kill people. It wasn't just about, and we think, when we think of the cross, we think about pain, physical pain, and the cross was definitely painful, but there are painful things you can do to people. There are tortures you can inflict on people that are not the cross. The point of the cross is shame. The, the victim of crucifixion would ha- be forced to carry the horizontal beam of his cross from the place he was sentenced to the place where he's going to be executed. And that path goes through downtown. And all through downtown, there are people along the side of the road, and they get to look at this person who, by the way, is completely naked and beaten and suffering And they mock because this person has been conquered by the Romans and they're being executed. And the shame of the cross continues after you get nailed to it, you get put up on the vertical post and you get just put on display for sometimes days as you slowly suffocate right along the main road, and everyone sees you. The the point of the cross is shame. And so for Jesus to even say, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy to me, is, is just weird. His audience, his, his disciples, the crowds that are listening in are thinking, wow, that's just a really awful metaphor. But there's a point to it. I mean, obviously, Jesus is on his way to the cross. We know that. He's going to die for sin on a cross and rise from the dead for our salvation. But at this point, nobody's really sure about that. His disciples don't even really think that's going to happen. But as a metaphor for following Jesus, the gospel violently attacks our self-interest. The gospel says, everything that you think you have going for you is not good enough to measure up to who God is. Everything that's awesome about you falls short. And the only way to fix that is to admit your shame, to admit your guilt, to let God in to your nakedness. R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew says, to agree to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. 
The condemned man at the, on the cross does not get to choose his path any longer. It is chosen for him. The road that he walks down is not his own. It is his executioner's choice. And in a similar way, to follow Jesus is to give up our rights, is to give up our claim on our own self-sufficiency and say, God, I want to go wherever you want me to go. And this is not an easy thing. A.W. Tozer, in his pursuit of God, writes, the ancient curse, he's talking about selfishness and the heart of sin in us. The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. He must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And this is what Jesus is getting out here. Like, if you really want to follow me, you have to lay yourself down. And it's not always fun, and it's not easy. And you have to deal with some junk inside of you. There's no way to be made like Jesus. And that's the point of following Jesus. Remember, as we've talked about being a disciple, a disciple is one who learns from the teacher, and wants to be like the teacher. And there's no way to be like the teacher without going through the cross. There's a story uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is, is a, um, there's a, a young a boy named Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Eustace is a, I imagine he's kind of like a junior high age schoolboy. He's kind of a jerk. Like he's just, he's mean, he's got a mouth, he's sarcastic, he's self-centered, nobody likes him, and he gets sucked into this magical world of Narnia, and he finds this cave full of treasure, and he's greedy, so he gathers up all this treasure, and he puts these, this jewelry on his arms, and, and then he falls asleep, and when he wakes up, something's weird, and he realizes after a while that the cave that he was in was a dragon's cave, and by taking this treasure, he has become a dragon. And he's covered in scales, and he's, everybody's afraid of him. And he lives like a dragon for a little while and kind of tries to make the best of it. And finally, he, he meets Aslan the lion, who is the picture of Jesus in the Narnia books. And and Aslan offers him this opportunity to be made clean, to be made into a boy again. And he says, you're going to have to take a bath in this pool, but you have to get undressed first. And Eustace is kind of like, well, I don't really know what that means. I'm a dragon and I'm naked right now. And, and so he thinks about it and, and he starts scraping at his scales and he digs his claws into his scales and he starts scraping. And, and soon enough, there's this whole like dragon skin, like a snake skin that's fallen off to the side. And he's all like, all right, I got, I'm naked. I got my, my scales off. But unfortunately, he realizes that there's just another brand new set of scales underneath. 
And so he goes at that and he scrapes and he scratches and he gets that off. But there's another set of scales underneath. Because he, as much as he tries, he can't get the dragon off of him. And Aslan says, if you want this suit off of you, I'm going to have to undress you. And then Eustace says, he's narrating this. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And this is Lewis's way of talking about salvation. All of the greed and the gross and the sin in Eustace was coming away, but he couldn't get rid of it by himself. Aslan, Jesus needed to get rid of it for him. And that process was not fun. It was painful. It hurt. Christ digs deep into our heart and unroots and untangles the the wickedness and the sin inside of us in order to make us whole, in order to make us like Jesus. So following Jesus is public. Following Jesus is violent. But following Jesus is rewarding. Look at verse 40. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. The one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So Jesus sets up his people in a way that we would call an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who, who works for a king and is sent out to another nation to represent that king. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this, and he says as much in 2 Corinthians, Second um, Corinthians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Uh, he, Paul says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. We go out into the world and we, we beg people, we plead, be made right with God, be reconciled with God. We tell people the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That's our job. And the ambassador is closely tied to the one he's representing. And there's a really interesting story about this idea in the Old Testament. The book of 2 Samuel, chapter 10. 2 Samuel, chapter 10, uh, is, takes place during the reign of King David. So he's the king of God's people, Israel, and he's... From our perspective, he's kind of a mixed bag. He does some good stuff and he does some pretty terrible stuff. And you think like, what's the deal? But from God's perspective, he says, he has a heart that is seeking after me. He's a good king. 
And after he's been made the king over the nation, after a while, the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 10, we read, sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanan became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. There was a time when David was not king. He was on the run and he had to make allies with other leaders. And the king, and, uh, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was a friend to him. And this man has died. And so David says, you know what? I just want to do something good for his son. So David sent emissaries, ambassadors, to console Hanan concerning his father. However, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanan, their Lord, just because David has sent men with condolences to you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, to spy on it and demolish it? So the new king's advisors, who are acting foolishly, they question David's sincerity. They think, no, he's not here just to be nice. Why would anyone just be kind? He's got a secret agenda. He's trying to destroy us. So Hanan, the new king, he took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards. Any of you guys use an electric razor? Whenever I shave with an electric razor, my great fear is that the battery is going to die halfway through the process. You know this? <laughs> and I think I'm going to have to go probably right before an important meeting. I'll have half a beard. That's super embarrassing. He cut off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips. They didn't wear underwear in ancient Israel. So that's also incredibly embarrassing. And he sent them away. When this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them since they were deeply humiliated. They didn't want to go back to the king because they were so ashamed. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back and then return. When the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David, they hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Armenians of Beth Rehob and Zobah, 1,000 men from the king of Micaiah, and 12,000 men from Tob. And so what happens is the Ammonites realize in humiliating the ambassadors, they have humiliated the king. Because these two men are, this group of men, these ambassadors are tied to the king. And the way you treat the ambassadors is the way you treat the king. And so by treating the ambassadors this way, they have made a great enemy of King David. And it goes on and David whoops them and um, wins the battle against the Ammonites. But the point is, the way you treat God's people is the way you're treating Jesus himself. And Jesus says, by welcoming those who have been sent out by me, you will be rewarded. Being a follower of Jesus does not go unnoticed by God. The way we treat one another is important to him. I notice the trajectory of this passage. It starts out with a prophet. 
Like, I'm a prophet. I have a word from the Lord. I'm, you know, big and powerful and mighty. And you think, absolutely, we're gonna, we've got you a suite at the Coeur d'Alene Resort. We got you a gift card to Beverly's. We're just gonna go all out and treat you super well. You're a prophet of God. And then I'm a righteous person. Great, I've got a really nice guest room at my house. You can stay there. We'll make you dinner. But then the third one is, if you just give a cup of cold water to somebody who's a follower of Jesus, he says a little one. This doesn't mean children. It means simple, new followers of Jesus. Someone who's just decided to follow, has heard the gospel and says, yeah, I want that. Whoever just gives a cup of cold water in my name, you will be rewarded. And this is, this is how, how the kingdom is like shaped. We always think of, you know, the powerful people are at the top and they deserve our honor and respect. And they might. But the people at the bottom, I mean, what do they have what to offer us? What can they do for us? Why would we go out of our way to be good to people who can't do anything good to us in return. But that's the whole point of the kingdom of God, that the people at the bottom are actually the people at the top. Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. I think sometimes we think that being rewarded for following Jesus is not very spiritual. Like we shouldn't want rewards. We should just, we should come to this place where we just do everything just because we're so awesome, right? Like we don't, we don't need to be rewarded. We're not motivated by rewards. We're just so good, But that's not what scripture says. Scripture talks constantly about the rewards that God is offering us for following him. And this is one example. There's a really great quote by C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory that you've probably heard before when he's talking about rewards. He says, the New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, Jesus has gone through this long passage of all this suffering and trial and pain that is in store for the follower of Jesus. And it's easy to walk away from that going, this is what God wants for me. God wants me to suffer. God wants my life to be awful. I don't know why, for some reason, he likes that. He likes people that are just miserable but I want 
to go to heaven when I die. I want to be a good person, so I'm just gonna press through and suffer well because that's what God wants. But what Lewis is saying is the exact opposite of that. He talks about this, this child who is making mud pies in the slum who can't even comprehend what it would be like to go to the beach on holiday. And so they refuse the offer. No, I'm good playing in the garbage. I don't, I don't know what the beach is. I don't know what sandcastles are. I have no frame of reference for that, so I'm not interested. And what Lewis is saying is, we have this set of things that we think will make us happy. And we hear Jesus say, those things won't make you happy. And then we go, well, I guess we're not supposed to be happy. But what Jesus is saying is, the things that will actually make you happy, the holiday at the sea, this is how you get there. You have to leave behind these things that you're content with relationship and money and fame and ambition and, and all these things that we think, yeah, we're doing just fine. But Jesus says, no, there's something better, something that will make you happier, something that will give you more satisfaction, more joy, more reward. Even if you don't really even understand what that looks like, trust me, follow me, and I will show you what's better. Lewis says, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are content with things that are mediocre and unwilling to pursue Christ for things that are better. John Piper uh, talks a lot about this. He, he talks about the um, <clears throat> Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're unfamiliar, uh, a catechism is a like a Bible study for kids to teach them about doctrine. And the way this works is there's questions and you, you ask a question and the kids memorize the answer and then they learn their doctrine. And this old Presbyterian catechism uh, says, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What are people here for? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper came along and said, he tweaked it a little bit. He said, no, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The idea that we live life to the fullest when we seek our satisfaction in God himself. When we trust Jesus to walk the way he wants us to walk and we're given the rewards of his own life, and all of the things that come with it. God is glorified by that. That's what God wants from us. My, my oldest daughter, who uh, is on vacation with her grandparents this week, she's having a really fun time. Her, her chore at home is to do the dishes. And uh, she doesn't always enjoy that. Sometimes she forgets to do the dishes. Sometimes she uh, complains about doing the dishes. Sometimes she does the dishes under threat of violence. <laughs> uh, but that's her job, to do the dishes. 
And she does them, and, and we're, she's part of the family, and we're grateful for that. But a couple weeks ago, she was having a friend over to spend the night, and my wife walked into the kitchen to see both of them doing the dishes together without being asked, joyfully wanting to help mom on a Saturday. And so Joanna took a picture of it and put it on Instagram. Because the joy that Joanna got from that, even though the task is exactly the same, the dishes are getting done, the fact that the girls were excited about it and helpful and wanted to be there and wanted to serve their mom, that brought joy to Joanna's heart. And that's the way that Piper describes our relationship with God. We can go through the motions. We can follow Jesus. We can just grit our teeth and bear it. But that's not what God wants from us. He says, hey, I have life for you. I have life and life more abundantly. And it doesn't look like these things that you think. It looks like picking up your cross, denying yourself, serving the least of your brothers and sisters. It looks like standing up for the name of Jesus and preaching the gospel, even when it's scary. And when we're people who go, yeah, I want to do that. I want to seek you in that. I want to find joy in that. That's what brings God joy. And the bottom line at the end of this passage is that if we give up things we think are good for things that we know are better, we're not going to be disappointed. And this is the life that Jesus holds out for us. He says, hey, things are going to be hard. Walking with me is not easy, but it's good. It's better. And you'll be rewarded for it. So that's the, the question for us this morning. Is if we're followers of Jesus, are, do we follow him publicly? Do we acknowledge him? Do we acknowledge the relationship we have with him? Do we let the violence of the gospel do a work on our heart to divide and cut and remove and purify? And then do we just seek after Jesus, our ultimate reward, because he's better than all the other things that the world gives to us? We're going to share communion. We're going to sing I would just pray that we would allow some space for the Spirit of God to speak to us. If there's anything that's going on in your heart that God is revealing, just give yourself some time to think through those things, to reflect on those things. And when you're ready, come up and um, take the bread and the cup um, and sing with us. God, thanks for the gospel. Thanks for the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he has come and conquered sin and death, that he has invited us into relationship with him, that we can be his sons and daughters by grace as a gift. God, I... I confess that I don't always acknowledge you 
what I should. I just pray for those of us that feel that way that you would give us strength, you'd give us boldness. You would help our default reaction to be, let me tell you about Jesus, my Lord. And God, for those of us that are hurting because the gospel is painful, I pray that you just bring us peace. God, if there's family strife or, or friends' relationships or tension at work or even just tension in our own soul, God, bring your love and your peace like, like a balm to comfort us. Help, help us as your community of people be your hands and feet in those situations and bring comfort to our brothers and sisters. And God, thank you that the path that you have us on ends with the greatest rewards that we could possibly imagine. And that the primary reward is yourself. Jesus, we get you. And even if we don't understand how much greater that is than everything else that we think is pretty good down here, I pray that you'd give us faith to trust you, that you are better. You are more satisfying. The joy and the happiness that you offer is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. God, help us to walk humbly, to serve one another well, and to be a light in our community. God, just continue to speak to your people as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.